Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest on this episode is Joe Hayek. In 2015, Joe acquired GWorks, a software company that takes geographical information system data from governments, cities, and counties and helps them visualize that data on their website, among other services. Since then, they've grown impressively well, both organically and through acquisition, and have recently recapped their investor base through an investment by BV Investment Partners to continue their strong growth trajectory. Joe was an officer in the Navy prior to his MBA program at Harvard and subsequent search. And we talk about how different building culture and leading teams is in the military compared to private companies. We also talk about building family versus team-based cultures, building a strong M&A strategy, what risks to accept versus walk away from, and knowing when it's time to exit a business. At the start of episodes, we're having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with August Felker from Oberly Risk Strategies. When I'm acquiring a small business, should I just use the seller's insurance broker or get my own? So that's a great question. Alex, we get from a lot of our clients is when we engage, many times the client goes, shouldn't I just use the, the seller's insurance broker and kind of roll the current insurance program going forward? And couple thoughts on that. Sometimes it, it might be the best option. What we do and what we advise is many times the seller's insurance program, there might be gaps in coverage. It might not have been quoted out in several years. And the seller's insurance broker kind of represents the seller. And it's just so healthy to have someone that's going to represent you, the buyer, coming in to give your own perspective on the insurance, like a different opinion. So that's that's sort of a just like you would bring in your own attorney and your own accounting team to give you they represent you sort of their unbiased opinion on on the the, the target company's insurance program. A couple other things is more and more so it's it's you can't roll forward the current insurance program through the change in ownership. For one, if it's if it's an asset deal, insurance is not assignable, so you can't assign the current insurance program just to assign it over to the new company that you're forming to acquire the assets. So, so you've got to rewrite it and redo it. And it's good to start early to do that. If you're not doing an asset deal um, and maybe it's a stock deal and, you know, the FEIN would stay the same. Still, there's language in many of the insurance contracts of the target company that they have a, a change in control provision where if there is a change in the equity holders, the insurance carriers have a right to, to cancel the policy. Many times it's, you know, there are obstacles just for rolling it forward and as is. And so that's why we advise getting someone on your side that's going to look at all this stuff and, and help you through it. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker and oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Hood & Strong for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I thought a fun place to start that we talked about over lunch was during your search, which was pretty short, only six months, you would, whenever possible, try to bring your wife with you to all these different company site visits just so you could both see together what it was going to be like to live there for seven years or 10 years or however long you were going to own that business. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think that was kind of an interesting part of our lunch that I thought was really interesting and fascinating. Sure. So one thing to know, my wife and I have been together since we were 16. So we've lived when I, I used to be in the Navy. So we've lived all over the country and, and where we live, we love some places more than others. And when we tend not to really enjoy the place where we are living, there's kind of an underlying tone of kind of somewhat misery because you don't, it doesn't feel like a home. You know, it feels like you are there and just march, you know, counting time until you can move somewhere else. And so big part of the search world when I was searching in 2014 is Oh, you, you, you need to do national and you need to be able to go be willing to go live anywhere. And, you know, I wanted to do a regional search, but it was also really important that my wife who'd been with me for such a long time, we were both happy where we were living. 
I didn't want her to be miserable because if she was miserable, I would inevitably be miserable and or vice versa. Like I could end up not liking the place either, Alex, and it would be hard on her. So I was always a big believer from when I was prepping for the search of getting in front of owners as soon as I could. And when I would do that, I would take my wife with me. And often I would get, she would drop me off to meet with that owner. And I would spend how many hours or, or a day with them. And then she would just go drive around and she'd go, you know, where are the churches, where are the grocery stores, talk to local people, what's going on. And if after the meeting, she'd ask me how my meeting went and I'd tell her and I'd say, well, what do you think? And she'd either say, nope, or I, I could be here. And if it was a nope, no matter how good that deal was, that was the end of it. And thankfully, my, my investors were supportive of that. And I'm very glad that I did that because in the last eight years, I've known a lot of other searchers, not a lot, I should say three specifically come to mind, who took the philosophy of I'll live wherever. And they lived in a location where either they or their partner or both of them were miserable because they didn't like living there. And those three all exited, exited those companies within three or four years. And, you know, at that time, exiting within three or four years, more than likely, you're not in a position as a searcher to where you're seeing much upside because you're likely still at debt and you like you haven't returned all your investor capital yet. And so for me, it, it really reinforced of you both got to be happy in the location and location matters greatly in search as much as the company. Yeah, that was pretty interesting because there's still an element of you want to build your company and kind of life in such a way that you could do it for a long time because it's going to take you, you know, maybe a couple of years before you really feel like you know the business well and you know how the cash flow dynamics are and growth opportunities. And so if you can't, if you can't get to that point where growth starts to compound and you're miserable, like you're not going to be able to get there all the way. I find that philosophy really interesting. Like what other ways did you try to optimize for constructing your day, the company you bought, your life, the city you lived in, in such a way that you felt excited to be able to do that for a long time. And you had that longevity to be able to get to the, those compounding years. So I remembered when I was in business school and I took the search fund courses, the professors had data that showed that most searchers actually end up within a hundred miles of their desired locational preference. And when I would talk to searchers who were doing a national search and say, well, where do you really want to live? And they named three or four locations and you just keep in touch with them. Most of their deal flow came from those three or four locations. That matters. I think, I think people know that matters. And, and so for me to live, I wanted, we wanted to be back in the great plains, the, the heartland, because that's where our family was. And so I really put a lot of effort into sourcing while I looked throughout the Great Plains region, I was really, really focused on finding things that were within a couple hours of Omaha, where I live and where I grew up and my wife grew up and where we had family still. And I had a lot of good deal flow from there. I mean, it's what I was incentivized and what drove me. And I think a lot of people will find that in a search. And so that's that drove that. Now, how I, I worked my days, Alex, I worked my days, you know, kind of working out and concentric circles, if you will, what, what can I work on local and then build out from there? So then I'm looking in the Dakotas and then Kansas or Oklahoma or Texas, you know, how do I, or Iowa, how do I build out? And then I ran my call sheets uh, based on that. Yeah. Your search was really quick, only six months. And can you share a little bit about what enabled that focus in that short time frame? I think, again, I was, this was 2014. So much has happened in the search world since then. I mean, it's involved quite a bit. When I was searching, it was still very much the funded searcher route. Self-funded was starting to take off a little bit, starting to get some legs under it, but it was still very much a funded search. And at that time, the funded search was national. When I dug into my, you know, I spent my whole second year in business school getting ready for my search. And I spoke to a couple dozen searchers, probably another couple dozen investors. And the thing I realized when talking to them, what national search actually meant at the time. So again, I'm putting this context of 2014 was search on the coasts and then major metropolitan areas outside the coasts, like a Chicago, 
or a Houston or a Dallas. But everything else, that's like, don't, don't look there. Look where everybody lives. And so I focused, well, that wasn't what I wanted. And so, and what my wife wanted. So we wanted to focus in the Great Plains region of the country. And so when I was searching, as far as I knew at the time, of all the searchers that were out there and still know, I was the only one at that time looking in the Great Plains. There may have been someone else, but I was not aware of them. I never ran into anyone else. And I think that helped. I was the only one out there, the only quote-unquote sophisticated buyer <laughs> that was out there looking for a deal. I think that mattered. I had really good deal flow as a result. You know, I had this attitude of, I wanted to get in front of owners as soon as possible, but I also had the same mindset for intermediaries. So, you know, I did proprietary outreach, but I also worked a lot with intermediaries, brokers and M&A advisors. I want to get in front of them as soon as possible and build those relationships. You know, they're people, they're trying to work a business. It's important to develop those relationships to help drive deal flow. So especially people that live within a couple of hours of me, I would drive and meet with them and meet with them in person and sometimes do it a couple of times. There's things like Corporate Finance Associates, CFA, and the Association for Corporate Growth, ACG. You know, they put on regional conferences, at least they did at the time. And I would go to those. I went to three of those. And, and that gives the opportunity to meet with lots of intermediaries. And so I developed those relationships. And so they knew I was real. They knew I had committed capital. And it helped with deal flow. I mean, it really did help with deal flow, just getting in front of people. I had an aha moment early on in my search, Alex, where I was part of so I have two, I had two investors and they backed some other people as well. So there's like a cohort of us out there searching and we were all doing regional searches and we would share deals with each other because we didn't really have overlap in each other's regions. So we worked really well together. It was, it was a nice team all working towards the goal of finding a company in our region. Well, I noticed early on that I would find deals in other regions from intermediaries in my neck of the woods. And it, I kind of had the aha moment in, sec, in the second month was, well, these intermediaries, they're calling all over the country to find companies to represent. I can't just focus regionally from a sourcing perspective. So I had a national outreach for intermediaries when it came to sourcing. And I found deals. You know, I looked at a deal in North Dakota represented by a firm in Texas. I looked at another deal in the Midwest represented by a firm in Maryland, one out of California. So. I think having that early aha moment where I needed to have a national presence for intermediaries really helped my deal flow. So I was, except for a couple of weeks in August when everyone takes vacation, I never had a trough of coming in to look at. And it really helped me stay on my metrics. And that was the other key thing was that, you know, you hear no a lot in the search. And the way I approached my search was things I learned from when I was in the military and it applies to just running my business now, which is identifying key activities, which taken together, increase the probability of success, not a guarantee, but the probability of success. And so I identify what I thought those key activities were. And then I kind of boxed my time and how I would spend them. And so I would spend mornings and I wasn't doing sophisticated email marketing back then. I, I didn't know that. I knew other people that were doing it. There are searchers out there at that time. And even now that have been wildly successful doing that. I didn't know how to do that. So I just called people and, and sent emails. So I'd spend my mornings doing cold calls and I'd spend my afternoons or doing meetings. And I'd spend my afternoons doing meetings and doing follow-up calls and then book travel around that. And I'd set metrics. I want to do so many calls per day and so many follow-ups per day. And I wanted to look at five good companies a week. And I wanted to try to do one IOI a month and one LOI every quarter. And those were the goals I worked against. So despite hearing no a lot, or we don't have anything for you or pound sand, as long as I was hitting those metrics, I could still say I had a good day. And so I think kind of the confluence of those things helped me in finding my deal. And then the final thing is this, there is some luck, right? There's obviously some luck. The search is like a deck of cards. And this is how I always think about it. And your company you're looking for is an ace of spades. And that ace of spades is, might be at the top of the deck or the middle of the deck or the bottom of the deck. And your job is just to turn over one card at a time until you find that ace of spades. For some people, that, that card's not in the deck. And if you have enough runway and money, you buy a second deck and start to move through that. So there's definitely an element of luck. And I think the final thing for me that helped me was 
I inevitably landed on doing a funded search and because I needed that sophistication of investors to help me really understand good deals from bad deals. My background was the military and then I went to business school. I mean, how I'm not a deal guy. I wasn't. And having them there available to me, and I only had two, which means I really could talk with them, really helped me understand and learn good deals from bad and good deal characteristics from poor deal characteristics. So when you take those kind of three different elements and put them together, I think that really helped me run and inevitably, inevitably have a, a quick, relatively quick search. And then how'd you land on a software company then? Was that something you thought of that you aimed for from the beginning or did that evolve pretty quickly? I mean, it must've evolved pretty quickly with only six months. Yeah. So I, because I was regionally focused, Alex, I was industry agnostic. I was very keen on the business model and business characteristics of what I looked for. And I found those things in various industries. I found it in healthcare I found it in energy, I found it in IT, and then eventually software and some other services, things like that. And I was not focused on finding a software company. In fact, when I was doing my search, I thought of software companies as there's tech complexity, there's technology and change risk, right? So that's, that's a lot of money that I don't have that background. Those aren't good deals for me. I, I'm not going to look at them. I'm going to focus on where I can come in and, and and get to work. That deal came to me via an intermediary. Actually, that deal came for me from a broker. And I had done all the things I mentioned. I developed a good relationship with her. She would share deals with me if they and she was looking, she had deals she was representing nationally. I would pass them on. If I thought they were good deals, I'd pass them on to other people in my network. She really liked that I would do that. And so she had this deal and that she was developing and she told me, Hey, this, this owner doesn't think I can bring people to the table. And would you mind just taking a meeting with him so that I can prove to him, I can bring people to the table. And then if he signs with me, I'll give you a one week exclusive look before I bring it to market for everybody. I'm like, well, what's the business? And she's like, well, it's a technology company that sells the government. I was like, Ooh, technology and then it's government. Government's going to mean long sales cycle and low growth. Ah, okay. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. You know, I'll take the meeting. That ended up being the deal. And it was a company that had a software component and a consulting component. And that software component only made up 38% of revenue. And the rest of revenue came from consulting and professional services and custom software development for other entities. And it was focused on GIS. And I had used GIS as a consumer in the Navy. So I felt from a customer consumer standpoint, I understood it enough that I felt comfortable with the technology that I could learn the rest, the back end side of it once I was in the business. So I had some comfort level around there. Uh, but that's kind of how it happened. It was not set out that I must buy a software. What's GIS? GIS is so digital mapping. It stands for geographic information systems. So Google Maps, Apple Maps, those are very light GIS applications. And there's more, much, much more robust ones out there. And, and we sell web GIS, so web-based GIS applications. That's what we sell. And so it's, yeah, it's just digital mapping. So what? And these are for government. So what would a government use your software to do? So on the GIS side, they'll use it for, there's a few different use cases. It's very, one is for public records. So you can visualize a lot of public records and then make them available to the public. So a lot of times the public wants to interact with their government around real estate properties and, but also things like floodplains and, you know, emergency zones and all sorts of things that can be visualized, planning and zoning, right? Zoning districts and different things like that. Election districts, those things can all be visualized in a map context. You make that available to the public and they are now consuming that online. They're not calling into the office. So we have you know, about 190 counties that use our products for those reasons. And those 90 counties get like 4 million hits a year on those websites. Those are not phone calls those counties are getting. 
So that's one use case. The other use case is a lot of counties will use them for internal operations. So county assessors who are evaluating and applying tax assessments, they use it to help with their tax assessments, especially with ag land, farm property and things like that. You know, emergency managers use it for planning purposes. Cities and highway departments will use it for infrastructure, physical asset management. So managing their assets and where they're located and that kind of thing. So it very much ties in the operational role. During my research of buying this original company, I had a consultant that I was talking to, and they had a bunch of research that showed that 92%, I think they got it from Gartner or something, 92% of all government documents have a location on them. Therefore, they can be visualized. So one other one thing within Search that I find really interesting is the quality standards that searchers have tend to go down over the course of their search, where they're willing to take on more and more risk. I think part of that is just understanding how small companies work, but also there's there's probably an element of like they're just more willing to do to take on more risk to get a deal done. But I'd be curious, like which one of the two did it feel like for you? And then what types of risks did you take, did you take on within the business that you felt like were an acceptable risk to take? So you've, you definitely feel the ticking clock when you're doing a search. And I, I had enough funded capital for a year with my investors and then with an option to do another year. So I definitely felt a ticking clock definitely sharpens the mind and the focus. But I try to de-risk things where I could. And again, this is why I was thankful I had investors that I could learn from. You know, focusing on a business model and business, business characteristics when you're regionally focused and agnostic to the actual business industry helped me find a lot of good businesses that met those characteristics or most of them. That was, that was important. That helped me maintain my deal flow and, and look at a lot of good companies and be more disciplined at what I was looking at. I mean, in the six months that I ran my search, I looked at and reviewed 300 companies. I don't know if that's a lot. But I was a solo searcher. That was a lot for me. Um, and, and a lot of them ticked off different characteristics of what I was, what I was looking for. So that helped me maintain discipline because that, that, it's tough to maintain your discipline when you want to get a deal done. The emotional side of you starts to, to take over. To also help with keeping that in mind so I could just try to stay disciplined. You know, I focus just on finding a good business. Not a great business. It's my job to make it great. And that was my attitude. You really hope you kind of find that unicorn when you get out searching because you hear about all these unicorns out there. Well, I don't mean unicorn as it's used now, but this idea that researchers who found these amazing businesses and they transformed into all these things. And you want to do that too. And you, so you want to find that great business right out the gate. You want to find a good business that's got good bones that has a resilient business model, as, mu- as resilient as it can be, and is in hopefully a good market, you know, depending on what your thesis is, is what you'll, that'll define what a good market is for you. But I think folks are just finding a good business helped too, because I was willing to accept hair on the deal. And then tied to that was with due diligence, and this is a philosophy I maintain to this day, Typically, when you're buying a small company, you're just dealing with that owner. It's not like he has an executive team behind him and all these third parties he can or she can lean on to help them. It's all them. And so deal fatigue, time, time kills deals, deal fatigue kills deals. And the longer something takes, the certainty level drops for that seller. I would just focus my due diligence around five or six key go-no criteria for that business and the rest I we just accepted as hair on the deal that I would deal with in the business we just focus on a few things having now been through a, a recap myself and I went through a very invasive and intensive and deep due diligence process we definitely don't do that if I were to layer that on a small company I'd buy that deal would die for sure but I have an executive team and I have third parties that I can lean on to help me. So I was able to manage it. So I, I, I think for me, what I did was when I had the business model I was focused on, focused on finding just a good deal and then really limiting the scope of the due diligence to just key 
go, no go criteria to help try to stay focused and disciplined on finding a good deal and finding a good deal quickly. One thing we've talked about before too is given your military experience, you've been in leadership positions and led military teams. What are some differences in like what things did you have to change about your leadership style coming into this company versus leading the military? You know, in the military, I think it's important for the military people to remember with the military is that it is a group of people working together to achieve a purpose. And they come from all walks of life. And at the end of the day, they're just still people. And so a lot of the things you do in the civilian world and the military world are the exact same. Because it's still just people. And people will find the way not to follow orders or follow directives or to sandbag in the military, just like you would find in the civilian world. It's a lot of those things are the same. And so from a leadership perspective, it is it is still around clearly identifying the mission, the objectives, aligning people behind it, and then bringing what resources you're able to bring to bear to position everyone in the overall organization for success. Those things are the exact same. I think a couple of things that I did not expect in the civilian world versus when I was in the military, one is around culture and tradition. So in the military, I was in the Navy, we had over 200 years of tradition and norms and culture that you just got brought into. It existed and you very quickly learned the norms and existed and lived within that. So often when you come into a small company, that culture is directly tied to that personality of that owner. So if that owner was loosey-goosey, you know, hey, high fives and beer on Friday, the culture reflects that. If that culture was, if, if that owner was very authoritarian, had to own every decision, the culture reflects that and the people reflect that. And so one of the things I didn't take and appreciate when I came in was that I had to build a culture and tradition from scratch. And that's a huge lift. I mean, that's still ongoing. It never ends. I didn't have all that. I didn't have 200 years, years of history to fall on. That affects your leadership because you spend a lot more time talking about your culture and who you are as a company. You have to beat that drum all the time. Whereas in the military, it's ever present and you don't have to necessarily enunciate it all the time. It, it, so that, that changed my leadership style. I think the other thing that in the military you know, it's the military. So there's that part of the culture plays into it. You still need empathy, but you don't necessarily wear your empathy on your sleeve. You know, it's not necessarily as public, right? It, I think in the civilian world, you have, people have to know you're empathetic and they have to be able to feel it from your interactions. We're not, you don't necessarily have to be that way in the military because it's still, we got to get a job done and it's not done. And I don't care that it's six o'clock. We are staying here till it gets done, right? It's it's different in, in the civilian world. The other thing in the military is, you know, you do your job, whatever the job is, there's always someone higher up to pass the buck. Hey guys, we're going to be stuck here all weekend doing this stuff. Came down from the flagpole. We're here. And now as a leader, it's your job to own that. Hey, this is why we have to be here, right? You have to own that leadership so it passes down those decisions. But in the civilian world, you are the ultimate arbiter of decisions. And you have to be more cognizant that people have lives and they have families and, you know, they're going to clock out at five and go home. And you can ask them sometimes to stay more for something that's really need, needy, but you can't do it all the time. In the military, you kind of had that safety valve of, hey, we'll just work until it's done. You can't really do that in the civilian world. You have to be much more cognizant of, of life in general than in the military. Yeah, certainly. This kind of leads into another point that we had discussed earlier about building family-based companies versus team-based companies and some of the nuanced differences in there. And I know you've obviously seen a lot of companies and invested in a couple as well. And I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on leaders aiming to build family versus team oriented companies? Yeah. So I'm, I'm very much in the team camp and I'm very much not in the family camp. 
And I'll start with the family first and then move to the team. So a family, right? Let's just think of our families, right? We don't pick our family members. We wouldn't necessarily want to work with all of our family members. It's not the purpose of a family is to exist as a unit and, and exist together as a unit over time. Typically you have a patriarch and a matriarch, you know, or some sort of combination of those things that are really the, 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 the guiding hand on things and people take their directions from them. But whenever a family's together, they always kind of live within the parameters and the boundaries owned and set by those, those people, kind of the parents, if you will. But families can be complete new air dwells and that's just fine because you all love each other. It's unconditional love. And I don't like that mindset in business. And so I'm very much about the team mindset in business. And a team to me, Alex, is a selected group of individuals working together to achieve a purpose. So you got to break that down. Selected group, right? You're selected to be on this bus with us. You got picked. You're not just here because you happen to be born two years after me, right? You're on the bus. You were chosen to be on the bus. You have to do your part to stay on the bus. That gets to working together. The team works together. They may do things individually, but it's in the effort to help the team and they'll do things as a team. Big thing on team with teamwork is trust, dependability, Right? You have to be able to trust that other person. They need to be able to trust you. They need to be able to count on you. You need to be able to count on them. It just takes on a different level of, of effort when in a team to work together to do what they need to do, which is achieve some sort of purpose. Right? So sports teams want to win the championship. Right? A company might want to be the number one in, in their space. That's the purpose they're working towards. And so for me, that drives a better outcome. And that drives finding higher quality folks who share that mindset that want to be a part of that team because they get excited about that and they get excited about being able to count on other people in a family environment, you know, love is the thing that trumps overall. And so things go unsaid. You can't necessarily always count on people, but you just kind of lumber along. And when I've looked at companies where they have a quote unquote family culture, you see a couple of things. You don't see wild growth and you see extremely low turnover. There should be some turnover in the business because some people graduate off a team to go do something new and exciting. Some people are kicked off the bus because they are not successful on that bus, but maybe they'll go be successful somewhere else. And as a team, you're more likely to achieve greater greater aims. So that's that's very much why I'm in the team camp and and sit towards that. So when I'm interviewing people, I'll ask them, what kind of culture do you prefer? Do you prefer a family culture or a team culture? And they'll give me whatever answer. And I'll say, well, what does that mean to you? And if people give me a family culture and then they give me some reason that lines up with that, they don't, they don't get on our bus. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty hard line in the sand. You talked earlier about empathy. There's, there's still an element of, even in a team-based culture, there's an element of empathy and understanding the constraints and pressures that are on various members of your team. How do you, how do you negotiate that balance where you, you still want to be seen as somewhat empathetic to your team, but how do you draw that line? I'd be curious. Yeah, it's tough because in leadership, it's all about dichotomies, right? You have to be accessible, but aloof. You have to be friendly, but not friends. You have to be empathetic, but dispassionate. You have to find as a leader to balance those things. I have, what I do to try to balance those things is keep everything as simple as possible. In fact, it's one of our core values. Keep it simple, but boil everything down to what, what matters the most. So every role is defined. What success looks like in that role is defined. What are two or three things that are, if you are doing these, you know, you're successful and and as long as you're living within those, you're great, you know, so that you can find, you can balance your work-life choices. Sometimes is there going to be a higher need for things? Yeah, but that's meant to be the exception, not the rule. And we've defined those for each team in my, each kind of sub-team, um, each department within my company. They all have those fairly clearly defined 
know, they have very clearly defined North Star. Roles are clearly defined. So everyone knows whether or not they're successful and what they need to do to be successful. And then we reinforce that. We do professional development training every week. So we want our team to grow and get better at their craft. If they get better at their craft, they're better at their job, they are happier in their work. The other thing we try to do, I, we spend a lot of time on, is just time management. We spend a lot of time working with people on how to manage their time. People that don't manage their time, the following things always happen. They get stressed. They get anxiety. They get overwhelmed. Therefore, they then burn out and they leave. So much of that is preventable. If, you, if someone just focuses on managing their time. So we, as part of managing our time, they need to have reasonable and realistic expectations and metrics and goals that they have to achieve. Try to stretch them a little bit, right? So they're reaching to just be a little bit better than they were the day before. So that's part one of managing your time. And then the second piece is just really teaching our folks to be ruthless with how they manage their time. And by doing that, they end up setting boundaries. The goal is time is a valuable asset, your most valuable asset. You need to own your time. Don't let others own your time for you because that's when you get in this bad situation. So we try to do these things to get the team well-oiled, if you will, and working well together and avoids not only stressors on the individual, but stresses within a department or stresses across departments. Can you give an example of proper and effective time management within an example role in your company? Sure. So sales is a good one. So we, we do what we call time boxing. So a sales, what does a salesperson have to do, right? They have to prospect. They have to develop. Because we're software, they have to demo. They have to do contracting and negotiation, and they got to close the deal. And there's lots of calls and touch points and emails within those things. It's very much important on the sales professional to own that schedule. So a good example of that is demos. We teach our salespeople to not say to a prospect, oh, whenever you want a demo, I will do it. Because now you've completely turned over your schedule and your time to some, somebody else. And then compound that by all the people you have in your pipeline. What's better to do from a time boxing perspective is to say, hey, for example, Tuesday afternoons and Thursday afternoons and Friday mornings, let's say, I'm devoting to demos. So I'm going to make sure my, calend- my calendar links and all that for demos show only those time periods available. And those are the only time periods available that I give to the prospects. And then I'm going to box this time for prospecting. I'm going to box this time for working on contracts and going over them with clients and securing the council votes and those kinds of things. And box time. And we do time boxing and not rigid time allocation. A rigid time allocation to me, Alex, is like, I'm going to spend 15 minutes on this contract, then I'm going to spend 30 minutes doing this call, then I'm going to do 20 minutes of prepping for a demo, and then I'm going to spend 30 minutes on a demo. Because what that ends up doing is as soon as you miss one of those time periods, you start gaining anxiety and you start getting stressed. And then it ends up upending your day. And at the end of the day, you feel you don't feel good. But if you time box, it says, hey, during these time periods, I'm doing demos. And you set those boundaries. Then, you know, that's your time period. And if you happen to that afternoon, have no demos. Well, you got time to put towards something else. And we have found by taking that approach, it works well within our company to, again, help keep the stress level down. And people have feel like they have ownership of their time. And I, and I tell my folks all the time, guys, we're the authority. We're the professionals. We know what we're doing. Therefore, we should be the authority on our time. You know, not a prospect, not a client. One thing we've also talked about is M&A and strategic acquisitions within your company. And I know you've done a few. I'd love to hear kind of how your philosophy there has evolved. And you mentioned some of the no, the go, no-go decisions within search. How do those change when you're looking for companies that you might acquire and integrate within your existing company and team? Yeah, so there's different types of acquisitions, right? One, you have opportunistic and then you have programmatic. Um, but, but then at another level deeper, you have three distinct, to me, three distinct types of acquisitions or buckets. And they can, you can have a thing in more than one bucket. You have adjacent, 
acquisitions. So that's where you're acquiring new products or maybe new customer verticals or new geography that's adjacent. You have competitors, right? You're buying a competitor. Most likely you're going to want their book of business because you're going to end up moving people into your products or cross-selling your products. You may keep theirs, right? They may fill in the adjacency camp as well. And then the third thing is transformational. Transformational is where it just totally transformed the business into something new. And for me, I started out as opportunistic. So the very first deal I did after my initial acquisition, it was in the first year and it was a very small deal. And we were just, it just happened to be an opportunistic deal. And we did it because we wanted to learn how to integrate, successfully integrate, and then create value from an acquisition. So we were opportunistic and we, we succeeded. Once we showed that we could do that, we became programmatic about our follow-on M&A approach. And that happened to lend around the time around 2017, where I kind of had my aha realization of what the business I was really in. So I was in my third year. I was like, okay, I'm really in this business. And this is what we need to do in our market to, to really distinguish ourselves. Therefore, our M&A needs to look like this. And it became programmatic. And then I, in a sense that day, I've been very, almost like running a search, doing the activities again to lead to success, very much like a search without the stress of the time clock. And so now I'm programmatic. The first, I did two following acquisitions after my first one. Both of those fell into the adjacency bucket. And the second one I did fell into adjacency and transformation because it was a very key acquisition tied to kind of the aha realization I had of the business. And so we kind of had to be really bold in that company that we bought. And I was very targeted in that. The business was the same size as mine. So, but they actually had more employees than mine. They had about 50% more employees than I did. So I went from 20 employees to 54. We added an entirely new product suite. We added hundreds of new customers and geography. It was transformational, but it had to happen for us to be on the path of where the business has been on since, which is where we wanted to be. So I've done those two buckets. Now I'm looking at the third bucket, the, the middle bucket competitors. So now I'm targeting those as well. So I'm still targeting, now I'm targeting all three. So I've been able to broaden my aperture of what I can go after. But that's how I think about M&A, right? I started opportunistic. Some people will start programmatic right away because they're a lot smarter than me and they have a lot more experience. So they know how to dive in and do those things. Um, but I wanted to prove we could do it. And my board wanted to prove that we could do it. And then we went programmatic. And then I those sub-buckets, right? The adjacent, the competitors, and the transformational. It's kind of how I look at things. And they might share characteristics. That's how I approach uh, follow-on M&A. From a due diligence perspective, how deep you go really depends on the size of the business, the size of the company. If, if a company looks like mine, where they have an actual executive bench, a lot of times in these small businesses you buy, they have quote-unquote managers. Typically, that's the best person at that job. They're not really a manager. I've seen that three times now, and I've seen that in the companies I've acquired, and then just looking at other companies and anecdotally from friends who've done search. But if they have an actual executive team, and they're of a certain size and certain level of sophistication level, you can go really deep during due diligence because they have the bench to handle it, and it's kind of expected. And basically, at that size, it's going to be a large deal. So you really have to go deep. But if I was to buy another million EBITDA business, I would take a similar approach that I've done in the past. What are the six key things that we really care about that we have to confirm? Except everything else. We'll, we'll paper everything else with reps and warranties and contingency if we need to or whatever, right? You can paper the rest. So that's that's how I'd still do it. I would still do take it on small deals the way I've always done it. And then large deals would go deeper. Kind of building on that is sensing an exit point in your business where eventually you know, a searcher is going to want to sell their company to somebody. How do you think about where that timeline comes? And I know you did a recap recently. I would love to hear a little bit about your thought process there in addition to these thoughts. But how do you think about designing or thinking about your exit? And then where did your recap fall into that thinking? So I think exit, so commonly in the search world, I've heard it so many times, is that the CEO drives exit, the exit process. And why do CEOs want to exit? Maybe they felt they've been in the business long enough. They've taken as far as they can. 
So it's ready for the next phase, which that's not what they're there for. They're not having fun anymore. You know, they're, they're miserable, frankly, that, that could be a possibility, but you know, or there's new opportunities on the horizon that they want to pursue. You know, there's lots of reasons why a CEO may want to exit and there's no kind of timestamp on them. Now in the funded search world, you know, some of these search investors now they're raising actual funds. So now there are potentially some time constraints involved that you have to be more PE like and be considerable of those. But a searcher is a very personal journey to get to that exit point for a CEO. There could be lots of reasons. We did do a majority recap very recently and my investors, which I've had from the very beginning exited out of the business. We bought in this, a really good private equity firm out of Boston called BV Investment Partners. They're really deep experience in technology and GovTech and have done roll-ups and have done growth strategies, all the things that align with what we're doing as a business. So they're really the right fit partner for us. And, and we, we had lots of interest during our deal process, but we kinda, I kind of saw and my executive saw throughout the process that these guys were the, clearly the, the, the best and had the most conviction. But what got us to that point, Alex, was not me. I didn't drive that. So it was a bit different. It was actually my investors that drove us towards the exit. In that, as part of my programmatic M&A outreach, I was developing good deals, but deals with really high price expectations. And we started seeing it enough. At first, I was... It was like Zoolander, like, am I taking crazy pills, right? Like, what is going on with the market? So my investors and I, we started meeting with investment banks and talking to other people in the industry. And we came to learn, no, that's where the market is. It is, that is where the market is. And when the last deal I found, it was late last summer, where it had a very high price expectation. And we had some independent parties look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's probably right. My board said to me, they said, Joe, this, this has happened a number of times now that we've outgrown the capital in the business because we are acquiring companies using our cash in the business and our debt capacity. And then if we had to put a little investor equity in, that was the governor on that was how much money I could put in because I was party pursue with my board by that point. I didn't want to be diluted. So those were the three things we had to buy a deal. Anything beyond that, we couldn't do. Well, we were finding a lot of deals beyond that. And so my investor said, you know, Joe, Joe, we, we've outgrown the capital. We are now hindering the growth of this business and we need to step aside. And, you know, that was very hard to hear at the time, but I understood it. And so I was like, okay, let's do this. And that's what kind of started this journey. So it was, it was kind of kicked off somewhat by them versus, versus the CEO, which is what, which is typically the case. But it was the right thing to do. It was absolutely the right thing to do. One thing within that that process of you know, your investors are hindering, you know, view themselves as hindering the growth of the business and you want to keep going. How do you know that you are the right person to keep running the business? How do you know that you have the skills to continue taking the company to the next level? Because I, I imagine there's CEOs who they just run out of their skill set and they're just not designed for companies of a certain size. They don't feel like they could get to that point effectively. Like how do you evaluate, how do you self-evaluate your, evaluate yourself and say that I am ready to continue growing this business versus, Oh, maybe I'm actually reaching my ceiling and it's now I might be the hurdle or the hindrance in this company. That is an excellent question. I had always thought, and I had talked about with my investors if any one of us leaves, all three of us leave, right? All for one, one for all. And so I just kind of assumed in my mind when we had decided we were going to do this. And I have a, I have a close-knit, I had a close-knit relationship with my investors. I've known them, I've known them for almost 10 years now. And we've always worked so well together that I'd want to, we'd want to do that again somewhere else. So I just assumed that I was going to exit. And in fact, when we went to market with our investment bank, we went to market with letting everyone know. Hey, I'm taking a knee too. I'm leaving the business as well. But as I started doing fireside chats and started meeting with all these different private equity firms, I realized that like my work's not done here. Like I haven't realized my vision. My conviction in this business is still 100%. 
I'm really, I feel like we're starting to get to the good stuff. I'm really excited about what's going to unfurl over the next five years. I don't know if I am ready to step away. Uh, and the, the firm we went with, BV, they matched in lockstep our conviction and our thesis and the vision we have for the business. That, that got me even more excited. So I, I kind of went from I'm leaving to I'm staying. But then it got to the point that you talk about, Alex, which is, can I even do this? I, I was a search fund CEO who was in the military before this. And all I have other than that was a business school. That was my business, right? My business experience. And going with a legitimate top quartile rock star PE firm, it's like you're getting called up to the bigs, right? You're getting called up to the majors. Am I really ready for this? Well, we have 100% alignment on what needs to happen, which is great. And I know the path of how to get there. It's just execution. Well, I know how to execute. My executive team knows how to execute. My employees know how to execute. So yeah, we can do it. Now it's at a much higher acceleration rate than which we want to do it. So you can't help but have self-doubt. So I am simultaneously, as I embark on this next phase, I'm just one month into it, excited, but also terrified. Because <laughs> it's, I'm up, and I'm, it's prime time. And, but I'm going to just do what I've always done. I'm just going to put my head down and do the work. And what happens is, is what meant to happen. So it's a bit of a question mark. I have the conviction of the business. I have the conviction that I have the team and we can do it. And we'll add more team members to get there. But there is, you can't help but have a little bit of self-doubt. Am I, am I, can I do this next phase? Because not every CEO is, can be in every phase of a business. So few are. So I'm realistic in that. And I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it everything I got. Yeah, I think a little self-doubt is probably helpful. It's good that your, your mind is, you know, providing a check and balance for yourself over time. I think, I think a little bit of that is helpful. Too much is not good, but... A little bit is will be will be good. I'm excited to watch Primetime Joe and see what you do for the next five years. One last question before we do closing questions: what What if anything would you change or do differently starting over in this path? Everything I have learned along the way, I felt should have happened. So I wouldn't necessarily go back and change anything. I had to learn those things. I had to experience those things. I had to go through the the downs and the ups. You know. I mean, we had a, there's a saying in the Navy that a calm sea doesn't make a good sailor. And so you have to go through the rough seas. It's how you get good. It's how you get better and more confident. And hopefully you're building that confidence over time. So I wouldn't necessarily change anything over time. I wish I would have learned faster. Yeah, you know, I, I, there's a lot of other folks out there that are a lot smarter than me. They will learn faster and, and get on the value creation path sooner than I did. But it still worked out okay. I mean, I, I, I really... The first couple of years were really difficult because we took some really big risks. We didn't start to really see those turn out until the year three. I think other people probably would have gone through those better than me. That's just a wish. I wish things could have happened faster, but they didn't. I think if I could only change one thing, Alex, would be just spending more time on myself. Not to sound selfish or immodest, but more of that kind of self-care thing. You know, spending more time with my mindfulness and my sleep and my activity and just spending time doing things away from work and outside of work, my mind's always thinking about the business and it's important to break away. And I've gotten a lot better at doing that over the last couple of years, but I struggled with it for the first five and, you know, it put a strain on me and probably put a strain on my family. So I wish I would have been more mindful of that from day one. So first closing question, what college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? I think a really cool and fun course, but I nerd out on this, would be to teach a course on how to ask questions and how to listen. Those are two skill sets that anybody can learn. And if you can learn them, you can be really effective in so many different things. And, and generally, in my experience, people are not good at asking questions and they're not good at listening. I was an intelligence officer in the Navy, so I spent a lot of time and went through training on these things. And I would love to teach that because they're definitely two skill sets anybody can. And it would benefit them personally, professionally, socially. Yeah, I completely agree. How would you set up that class? Well, first, I would start with questions are your best friend. 
I mean, when in doubt, ask questions and then just kind of start to break down the different types of questions I ask. So there's two kind of macro type of questions, and then there's a bunch of different questions beneath that that you can ask and how to think about asking questions and how to stage them, how to do follow-ups. And are you trying to learn? Are you trying to influence through your questions and how that leads to different types of questions you ask? If you had to um, learn uncomfortable things, how to ask those questions to elicit that information and then how to listen to retain a lot of that inf information because you don't want to be asking questions, writing stuff down. It just looks awkward. And so how do you retain that information that you can write down later? Yeah, that's a good point. It's hard to, it's hard to write and talk at the, at the same time. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? So I feel like I evolve over time. I think a big thing that changed with me was, so yeah, I'm, I'm an introvert in the sense that my energy comes from within, you know, an extrovert, they get their energy from other people. And so I'm very much an introvert, but I was also shy growing up and uh, that would lead to social anxiety. And I always thought that's just the way it's going to be. It's just going to be a tough road, but I don't think that way anymore. I, I feel largely that I've overcome that social anxiety and that shyness. And I, I just always believed that it wasn't possible. And I, was, I very much felt this way probably until I was in my early to mid thirties. So having gone through the Navy and been in a company, but I realized I had some realization at some point, like I, I'm able to do these things in my business context because the business requires it of me. So it's just a mental hangup I had. And I was able to just kind of get over that mental hangup. And it's, it really kind of reinforced me the power of your mind and just mindfulness and how you think is how you are. And I was able to kind of overcome this belief that I was always just going to be shy and socially anxious and struggle with that. And I, I, I don't anymore. I have no problem mingling in a crowd. I have no problem calling people, doing any of those things, things I struggled with for a long time. So I, I, I think that would be the one that comes to mind. I like that one a lot. As a, as a fellow introvert, I also uh, resonate strongly with that one. What's the best business you've ever seen? That's a tough question. So I can think of the best business type I've seen because there's a lot of businesses that fall within this. In fact, this is what we're trying to aspire to be, which is this idea of product-led growth. And the idea of product-led growth is your product. So in my case, software is the key catalyst in acquiring expanding and retaining clients. So it totally changes the way you think about your business. Totally way it changes the way you think about product market fit, user experience, the type of removing friction from someone's life, be able to use your product and experience value quickly and keep experiencing value over time to where they want to expand and, and take on new things. And so there's companies out there that fit this mold, right? There's Google's a classic one, Atlassian, Dropbox, Twilio, Slack, right? They're, they're all very much product-led. The product does all the heavy lifting. So it totally affects the way you think about go-to-market and sales and marketing and support and client success because everything is now built around product. Product is the catalyst for the success of your business. Lo and behold, right? I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing. But to, that it shouldn't be, but it is. And so product-led growth, those types of businesses are, are, if you look at them and study them, they are versus peers that are not that way. They are multiples better in, in so many different regards, not just valuation, but you know, resiliency and sustainability and growth and cash flow. Like those are just they're amazing businesses. So we're, we're on the transformational path as a company to go product-led. That's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of time. I, I've always enjoyed our coffees and lunches. And so it's, it's been super fun to be able to record one and, and share a little bit more. So thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Yeah, it's been tremendous fun. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. 
For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. 